listening to The Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Batt. The Prime Minister of Sweden visited Washington today, and my tiny little nipples went to France. And Bruce Nolan. Yo, brethren, what up with thee? Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. This is uncharted territory. Very uncharted territory. It's a weird pod. It's a weird, it's a weird situation that we're in because... We talk a lot on this podcast about whether or not games matter. We talk about whether or not we know if what we saw indicates the team is good or not. And we are now in a situation and in a territory where it doesn't really matter whether you're good or not good. All that matters is whether or not you can sneak a W on game day. Just win, baby. That is the only thing that matters. If we can leave Reliance Stadium with a W on Saturday night, that's it. Then we are going to the next level. Good or not good, the Texans could be a far superior team. They would still go home, and we will still have another chance at a championship. Wins are no longer a predictor of anything at this point. In the NFL, the best team doesn't win the Super Bowl all the time. That happens all the time. When you have sports that have series associated with them, baseball and basketball, hockey, it it really increases the margin for error for really, really good teams. And so more often than not, when you get a champion, it's pretty clear that's the best team in the league. And in football, that's simply not the case. The margins are so razor thin, and one game is all you got. And if you have a bad game and you're a really important player, that's it. It doesn't matter. In the NBA, you can have entire storylines develop over the course of a series in the playoffs. Each series has its own storyline that ebbs and flows. There's no time for that in the NFL. In the NFL, it's you win, you survive, you advance. You lose, you're gone. It doesn't matter if you're the better team. At this point, whether or not the Bills are good or not is not relevant. All that's relevant is whether or not they win. It's also a situation where whether, like, how much more we are going to learn about this team is now abbreviated because there is not a guarantee that if we have a bad game this weekend, we're going to see how we bounce back the following weekend. If Josh Allen has an offensive explosion, is it possible for him to string them together? Well, if he has an offensive explosion and we lose, we don't get the answer to that question. All the guarantees of we get to see how the team progresses, those guarantees are gone. It is simply about 4.30 on Saturday in Houston. And, you know, it's interesting because we are sort of building up the muscle memory for how to experience this right now. I think all of Bill's Mafia is building up the muscle memory of how to experience this because 
other teams, fans of the Steelers, for example, who my is this is so everybody knows how much I hate the Steelers. I was with my wife today, and she doesn't follow football that much. She she knows I care about the Bills, and so she she follows the Bills a little bit. But that's it. So today she asked about the playoffs, and she was like, "So how many teams are in the playoffs and all that?" And I was answering, and she's like, "So how many games are this weekend?" And then she said, "Are the Steelers in the playoffs?" And I, this smile came across my face, and I said, "No." And she goes, "Does that make you happy?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> And I was very tired, and I've had a long... It's been a long couple of days, and I, I discovered <laughs> organically how just, like, spontaneous joy can be brought to me when the Steelers are not good <laughs> and don't do good things. But if you think about a Steelers fan, they know how to navigate. Like, this wouldn't be that new to them, you know? And, and hopefully we are on the way to that experience ourselves. But right now... You know, this is this is different. And and until we put a significant number of playoff appearances and games under our belt, I think these are going to these are going to feel like uh, there's just a lot of nervous energy, a lot of nervous energy. So we're not going to talk a whole lot about the Jets game. I don't think maybe some maybe injury type things or, or, or conditions that were in as a result of, of what happened. But the Jets game is inconsequential. There's been a lot of news around the league that's you know, somewhat interesting. We could maybe say, say a word or two about that. But for the most part, we need to talk about and discuss how, if possible, the Bills can beat and put themselves in the best position to beat the Texans and whether or not there's any gamesmanship that's going to go into that. You know, like people are clamoring for Duke Williams to be active. Some people are clamoring also for Yeldon to be active. Some people are more measured on both of those, you know. Especially at the end of the at the end of the regular season, there there starts getting this talk about teams that are guaranteed playoff berths, about whether or not they should put things on film that they just want to make the other team prepare for, but they have no intention of using, or if they want to not put things on film that they maybe have been saving and squirreling away all season in an attempt to surprise somebody. Now, you know, we threw that tackle touchdown to Deion Dawkins against the Patriots, which, you know, in retrospect, that game had a lot of influence because Miami did beat them and we could have potentially had the division and all of that stuff. I'd be interested, Bruce, for your take on that whole idea of the gamesmanship, whether or not teams are hiding things or they're going to do unique things they haven't done all year. Is that something that everybody does that some, that some people do? Is it overblown? Is it something that... The Bills, you know, you would want the Bills to do or not do. Where, where, where is your head at on all that? I think as a general rule, it's typically overblown. And I think it's overblown because the sample size in the NFL is so small that if you have a chance to win a game, you win the game. That's how this works. Now, there may be a game or two here or there that ends up being inconsequential, like the Bills game against the Jets. And so be that. But... The NFL is a unique sport. It's not the NBA. It's not the MLB. There's not a bajillion games. There's 17 weeks and 16 games. And you need to win as many as you possibly can. And one win that should have been a loss can change everything. And one loss that should have been a win can change everything. The the reason why NFL is the most popular sport in America is basic supply and demand. It's an economic function applied to psychology. 
This is one of the reasons why I do not want to see the NFL go to 18 games. One of the reasons why it's so popular is because every snap matters, much less every game. Every snap matters. Having a game that's meaningless in the NFL is uncommon. Having a game that's meaningless, we have star players who don't play multiple games every week in the NBA. You never have load management nonsense in the NFL. And that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. For that same reason is why if you're an offensive coordinator and you've got a killer play against man coverage, you're not going to hold that thing for the playoffs. Now, there may be some things in your playbook you just never got around to. In, it just never rolled out as part of the game plan. And they might roll out as part of the game plan in the playoffs. But that's not because you were stashing them away. It was because you didn't need to use them. Isn't there also an aspect of specifically offensive play calling where you are setting things up for weeks down the road? You're, you're, you're giving teams a particular look and executing a play in a specific way, going to a particular receiver, and then all of a sudden there's a bootleg on the same play that you've shown 15 times and you never show them the bootleg. Or there is a, you know, a, a guy who goes down the seam who normally never even releases out of out of protection in that situation. One of the people in the NFL who's really, really good at that is Kyle Shanahan. And Kyle Shanahan will show you the same formation with the same motion four different times. And every time you look at it, you're like, no, I, I this time I know. This time I totally know what this play is. And you don't. You don't know what play it is. There was one on the goal line last night against the Seahawks where they were in power formation and George Kittle was sprinting in motion across. And it looks like he's going to try to outflank the defender who's covering him in man and get a quick pass to the the uh, the short side pylon for a touchdown. That's what it looks like. Everyone thinks, okay, that's it. And that guy runs and runs and over-pursues, and it leaves an intermediate gap open for the run game where they pitch it and the guy walks in for a touchdown. And you're like, well, I, I saw that before. I, I, I saw that going differently in, <laughs> in my, my head. head. I saw that going differently in my mind. You know? And so, yeah, that absolutely <laughs> happens. The really great play callers show you the things that they want you to see. And then you look left and they go right. It's the, you know, it's a Kansas City shuffle. What's a Kansas City shuffle? Kansas City shuffle is when everybody looks right. You go left. Never heard of it. That's the way that is. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, with the movie Lucky Number Slevin, but they open the movie with a concept called the Kansas City Shuffle. When you get them to go left and you go right. So yeah, got it, got it. So let's let's take a moment and talk about you know some of the offensive talking points that did come out of the Jets game. This is probably the only walk the only takeaway outside of injuries out of the Jets game is that Duke Williams had over a hundred yards receiving. It was with largely Matt Barkley. I don't know that he caught a pass from Josh Allen in the first two series. I don't believe so. And it was against the Jets' first-team defense. It's it's a nice stat line. I mean, I, I agree. You know, admittedly, it's a nice stat line. And Duke again brings something to the table, skill set wise, that is not duplicated amongst the rest of his peers in the wide receiver room. These are the common perspectives and the, the common opinions that are making people want to see Duke on the field for the offense. 
what I think is, you know, a little bit underplayed is that Duke also had some plays that he should have back. You know, there were some moments that looking at the film, you know, he, he could he could get lit up on. There was a there was a particular play that was easily a first down conversion. He caught the ball, I think, two two and a half yards short of the sticks, and turned upfield before he secured the check before he secured the catch, and the ball goes to the ground. You know that's that's a that's a killer. There was another that was a drop deeper pass, and then probably the play that is the biggest indictment on him was a third down play that was an out pattern, and he made the catch, but we were short of the line again. And there was a particular perspective about how that works that, that I think myself included didn't always know this is, this is the responsibility of the receiver in that particular situation. We had the, the pleasure of having Greg Tomset from the Cover One podcast who has some connections to Cleveland and was in town for some family things who watched the game with us at the Bills Backers Bar. And the three of us had a conversation about the play sheets and about what the responsibility is in that circumstance. Do you want to take a moment and kind of bring us all up to speed about, you know, when a when a we're in, in a third and four, third and seven, third and whatever, and there is a pass that goes near, near the sticks, where the receiver is positioned, whose fault that is and where the responsibility falls if it's not quite right? Obviously, you're never going to know 100% for sure because you don't know the exact play call. But the high probability is that's on the receiver because play sheets, generally speaking, are broken down. You see the play sheets that an offensive coordinator covers up his mouth with and calls the play. They're big laminated pieces of paper and they're broken down by down and distance. And so they're look how many yards you're attempting to gain on that play is used to determine what play you're going to call. So if you're at third and six, you're going to look down at your play sheet and say, okay, I have these broken into sections. You know, here are my third and five to seven plays, right? This is my, or however it is that person chose to break it down when they were building the play sheet. And that's typically how they they call plays. This is why defensive scouting of tendencies is so important. Because if if your playbook isn't big enough, and it's not changing and evolving, then eventually people will have seen every play that you will ever run on third and five. And that's why you constantly have to be a step ahead. you got to be involving. you got to be picking the right things to do. This is why the Kyle Shanahan example comes, where he'll show you something and the defense will go, ha, I saw this on film. I worked really hard. I totally know what this is. And then the play will run like, nope, that, that, that wasn't that. That's not what I... That's totally not what I thought that was going to do. I was mistaken. <laughs> that was mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. At that point. And so when you have a play call, that is that. There is no reason why a speed out, which was the route that Duke was running, there's no reason why that would ever be called short of the sticks. So let me ask this question as a follow-up, just, just for clarity purposes. If there is a play... Uh, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm just gonna call it Green Phoenix. That's what you're. It's, you're wearing a shirt that has a Green Phoenix logo on it. So, it's the Legend of Zelda logo. I, 
I never I never played Zelda. My actually. nerds, my nerd friends need to unite behind me right here. Never never played Zelda actually. My wife my, got me this T-shirt at Kohl's. My wife uh, my wife made a comment about Zelda the other day, and I, she was surprised to hear that I never played Zelda. Just I just don't know you at all anymore. Yeah, well, yeah. That's well, okay. I have Zelda, so next time you you come over to my place, I have multiple Zelda games on multiple systems, and I will I will I will introduce you to Zelda. All right, I'm a little hesitant, but that's okay. So you call Green Zelda, okay? And obviously a play call is way more complex and has far more information in it. Now, if in Green Zelda, the receiver who winds up on the near side of the field, if you're looking at it on, you know, television camera, play going from left to right, okay? The wide receiver who lines up at the near side of the field, the lower part of the screen, if their route is an out, okay, and the down and distance is third and five, is that route a five-yard route, even if, in an alternate reality, you call Green Zelda and it's third and seven? Is the receiver's does the receiver have the responsibility of automatically extending their route to the yard to gain, or is it a fixed depth and they just need to, um, you know, if if the if the play caller actually called a play with a five yard out on a seven yard to gain, then that would truly be on the offensive coordinator. It's impossible for me to say without knowing the exact play call and what their coach to do. I will tell you that in every scenario I have personally seen, it is the receiver's responsibility to run the route to the sticks. Okay. I guess at one point in time, I thought it was fixed. And then, and then sometime a while back, I was made aware that typically not always, but typically the expectation is that the receiver needs to be aware of the situation and needs to execute by going to the sticks. If that means they have to add another step and a half on their route before they cut, then that is their responsibility to know the circumstances and to be in the right place at the right time, which is why a lot of some of us, I guess, uh, you and I included, are looking at that route and, and saying, ah, that, that's on Duke. A lot of these play call discussions that you and I get into and schematic stuff that you and I get into, a lot of it's based on probability because there's no way to 100% know what they're told, what they're being told to do. But if I think so and people I trust think so and it's been that way every time that I've seen it, I feel a strong enough probability that I'm okay saying I'm okay making the statement that I think Duke make, made a mistake. Yeah. Okay. So aside from that play in particular, and aside from this play sheet conversation we just had, what's the overwhelming perspective that you have about about Duke? I'll, I'll, I'll come on, on mine because you can mine is probably less nuanced and, and simpler than yours. I have no problem with Duke playing. I am not out here campaigning that Duke should not play. It is obvious to me that the team values having at their disposal, not even necessarily utilizing, but having Pat DeMarco at their disposal, having Robert Foster at their disposal, having Andre Roberts at their disposal, having Lee Smith at their disposal. These are guys who, you know, admittedly have pretty narrow responsibilities for what the team asks them to do by and large, week in, week out. It is it is rather limited. Andre Roberts doesn't do a whole lot outside of the return game, gets the occasional offensive snap. Robert Foster doesn't do a whole lot outside of gunning and kick coverage right now. He gets the occasional offensive snap. 
Pat DeMarco hardly gets any offensive snaps, but we know what he does when he does. And Lee Smith, the same story. Now, these guys are not major contributors, I don't think. Now, Andre Roberts, different story because of what he does in the return game. But these other three guys, I think people are looking and they're saying they don't give you anything on the offensive side of the ball. So why don't we sit them and then start Duke? Well, the answer to that question is that the, you don't have to feel this way, but it's obvious the coaches believe if you add up the commitment to these individual players, their narrow skill set, what they give you if you happen to need it, okay, or you happen to choose to utilize it on any one given game plan versus the pluses and minuses of the same of Duke. Each of these individual players, they are thinking that they are greater than what Duke gives you. You can disagree with that, and I, I, I could probably be talked into being, you know, disagreeing about that, uh, especially with Lee Smith, maybe. Uh, the others, I don't know. I, I, it, every person has a different barometer, I think, for how they land on those things. That's obviously the circumstance, though. And if the team decides, no, you know what, we can utilize Duke, I'm fine. But it's not like. I'm, I'm not that upset that he doesn't get the run. My issue with the Duke stands is not that I'm anti-Duke. It's much like your scenario. It's not that I'm opposed to him playing. My issue is that when their statements get questioned more closely, they don't have any answers. So I'll give you a great example. Start Duke over Foster. Okay. Who's your new gunner on special teams? It doesn't matter. Okay, well, that's not an answer. Yeah, that's not a good answer. Okay, so start Duke over Foster. Okay. So, well, well, Duke can gun. No, he can't. He can't run. He doesn't have the wheels for to, to gun. You have to put a four six seven guy down and have him be a gunner. That's not gonna happen. Unless you wanna I mean, do you want 30-yard punt returns? Because that's how you get 30-yard punt returns against you. So, okay, so start, you know, take Duke in and, and put Foster out. Great. Okay, how many targets do you think Duke's going to get? You want you want to give him Foster's targets? Because Foster's had single digits all year. Yeah. Will, will that make you feel better? Well, okay, well... Well, okay. Well, no, no. I want to. I want to. I want to activate Foster. I want to ac- deactivate Foster. I want to activate Duke, and then I want to give him a ton of targets. Okay, great. Who are you taking the targets away from? Uh, Lee Smith. Well, he doesn't get any. Okay. Uh, Isaiah McKenzie. He doesn't really get any either. Yeah, he's a jet action. He's a jet action guy. He gets. He gets. You know, very very few targets. He gets as many. He gets as many carries as he does targets. Do you want to take him away from Beasley? Knox. You want to take him away from Knox? Who plays a different position, mind you? You can't really substitute that. You want to take him away from John Brown? I had somebody on Twitter tell me today that John Brown needs to step up his game because Duke Williams scored 100, you know, got 108 yards in a meaningless game. So, okay, so that's my first thing. So, so what what do we do with that? Okay. Yeah. To me, the frustrating thing about that conversation is it just proves that people go get up and use the restroom when it's time to punt and kick. Like they're not watching. Yeah. Because. Robert Foster is a, a fairly good special teams player. Like, I, I like having him. He's getting... Robert Foster is making significant money. I mean, he is making game checks. The, the game checks are different sizes when you are active and not active. Yes. So, Robert Foster is getting paid, like... Much more than a deactivated yeah, player. Much more because of his gunning ability. Period. That's yeah. about it. That That is his contribution. His kick coverage. So, his punt gunning ability... 
when Corey Bajorquez lets it go is is what Robert Foster is making his money on. He's not making his money as a receiver this year. So are the one and a half targets that Duke's going to get in a game, are those worth the 15 to 18 snaps that you're going to get from Robert Foster? In kick coverage. In kick coverage, punt coverage, and a, a smattering on offense. And, and, and here's you know, And here's where I think it gets even a little bit more... You want to just have some things in your back pocket. And if you want to debate about it, you can debate about it. But Lee Smith and Patrick DeMarco. You know, Andre Roberts, I don't really have any appetite for talking about that. He is a very, very valuable player. He he moves the needle significantly on where you start and don't start. We saw it with Isaiah McKenzie, who let a punt land and trickle and got about another 12 yards of field position that we lost which is a punt that in most circumstances, it looks like Andre Roberts would have at least fallen on it and stopped the bleeding. And Nick looks at me when that happens and goes, Andre Roberts would have never done that. I said, exactly. He wouldn't have never done it. How quickly we forget what it was like to have Isaiah McKenzie fielding punts last year. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about 8 to 12 yards on almost every single drive of field position, sometimes significantly more if he's able to create a touchback scenario. So, you know, I just don't have... I'm not interested in the Andre Roberts. You can feel that way if you want. You think he's not very good. I just respectfully it's disagree. Between the Andre Roberts and the Robert Foster discussions as far as deactivation, that tells me that the term hidden yardage is called that for a reason. Those two players contribute positively toward the Bills starting field position every single drive. And with an offense that struggles to generate first downs, you would like to deactivate two people who are directly responsible for starting field position being worse for the other team and better for our team. No. No thank you. I'm not willing to do that for one and a half targets a game. Now, the second thing that's the discussion with Duke Williams is the run blocking. And I think there's merit to that. I really do. I think there's a significant merit to having John Brown and Duke Williams on the field in 12 personnel as opposed to John Brown and Cole Beasley because of the run blocking. And and also it's because Duke is a legitimate receiving threat. That's that's part of this is that when you put Duke on the field and he's a great run blocker, it's not giving your hand you're not you're not showing your hand when he's on the field that this is not a pass. It's not a Lee Smith maneuver. No, it is not. So I'm I I I'm willing to listen to that. But this concept that you deactivate, who who do you deactivate? I the problem is everyone wants to just swap him for Foster, and I'm just not okay with it. Now, if you would like to have a discussion about deactivating a different player, I I will listen to that. Here's one for you. Daryl Johnson. I understand it limits our rotation at defensive end. He doesn't get any. He doesn't get any run anyway. Daryl Johnson gets very limited snap at defensive end, and his role on special teams, right, is not so significant that we. I mean, he's not a core special veteran teamer. If some, if we needed an additional body to rush from the end, Lorenzo Alexander could do it, and we could very, very easily sub in Julian Stanford and or Lorenzo Alexander into. Daryl Johnson snaps on special teams. I'm willing to listen if you'd like to talk about that. I would even I would even rush Corey Thompson standing up. Yeah. I, th- th- those are things where I'm willing to listen to the specific players. We oftentimes dress for safeties. 
I'm not really we can't do that this super week. interested we can't, can't mess with that this week yeah i'm not really super interested in that especially after what happened with levi wallace so the problem is it's not a fully formed thought people just get really mad about one half of a thought play duke okay now tell me who you want to deactivate yeah. and now tell me why and now we have to balance it but they don't want to talk about that they just want to scream into the ether play duke play duke play duke the, and, and you know and here's here's where i'm i can hear what you're saying but i do think that there is i do think that there's another half to this another side to this coin which is that people want to sit lee smith and they want to sit pat jamarco now lee smith you real i mean I, I've been on, like, give Tommy Sweeney the reps for weeks. So, you, you know, I'm already a little bit, I'm already 50% there with you on Lee Smith. But the why the team wants Lee Smith, if we get in a situation where we need a six-minute offense, the Bills want Lee Smith. When you are in the situation where you have a six-minute offense, the Bills want Frank Gore. When you are in the situation where you, have, want, where you need a six-minute offense, the Bills want Pat DeMarco. And they probably like Pat DeMarco if they need to figure some things out on the first couple drives to move him in motion. One of the things that our offensive coordinator has decided is a potential answer to cover zero pressure is bringing Lee Smith and Pat DeMarco on the field and Max protecting to give Josh Allen time. If you would like us to just not be able to run any plays at all with a fullback, you just I'm just going to cut out that complete part of my playbook. For a receiver who's going to get one and a half targets a game, that's a bad value proposition. So again, you have to pick the guy who you want to deactivate, and then you have to weigh those pros and cons. Yeah. You can't just say, play Duke. Yeah, I, the Pat DeMarco one I'm less interested in, and I, I totally get why people would hate this. And I can hear people I know and and, and like and am friends with talk. You know, I can hear them complaining about Pat DeMarco, and and it, he doesn't see the field enough. All this stuff, it is all about having it in case you need it. More options better than less options. It is all about having it in case you need it, and it is if you think about it, like on paper, Pat DeMarco. Plus, all of the things that he offers, minus his weaknesses, is greater than Duke Williams, plus all of the things that he offers, minus his weaknesses. Like, that is the conclusion of the coaching staff. And I think that it matters because if the defense is giving you things and you really need to see, you need to get like a little bit of, you need to even, even Dable needs to get the answers to the questions before the snap. You put Tamarco in the backfield and you send him out wide and you see who goes with, and then now you know, now you know. Now, are there other players you could potentially do that with? Maybe Dawson Knox, but I mean, you're just—it's not the same because of the because of the high end skill set and the limited athleticism of Pat Tamarco shows you what the defense is willing to commit to him and who's responsible for what. So. It just isn't as simple as this guy literally offers nothing. That's what I think the conclusion people are coming to is that these alternative players, they want to sit in lieu of Duke. There's just no appreciation for what they offer the offense. Or because the they don't see it. Yeah. They don't see it. Exactly. And, you know, because they see they, touchdowns, they see catches. Because they don't see it, they think that the situation under which they would be utilized doesn't exist. And that isn't true. Yes. So, we'll take a quick break come back and finish this conversation about the bills and then we're going to get into the texans support for this show comes from sylvan learning as a parent you want your child to have every opportunity 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast, a playoff Buffalo Rumblings playoff podcast, a playoff Buffalo Rumblings, a postseason podcast. Ooh, that was a Mark Miller impression there. I don't think you want to be doing that. Uh, Not right now. The Bills are on their way to the Houston Texans on Saturday. How are you feeling in general? I mean, are you are you wound up? Do you have any like anticipation? No, just calm as a cucumber. Just cool as a cucumber. Cool as a cucumber. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. As far as dude, I thought we were going to be eight and eight. Yeah, I'm you're, it's thrilled. all it's all house money. It's for all you. house money for me. I I really like to win a playoff game. I really feel like winning a playoff game would be a great um, a great step for this organization after breaking the drought and then taking a step back and having the rebuild and winning a playoff game. I think winning, winning a playoff game would mean a lot. Winning a playoff game sets the table for if we do it again next year. Now, you're that's a three step forward. You know what yeah. I mean? Right now, like this is a what is it? It's kind of like if you I, I have this image in my mind where if you're trying to break down a door, okay, or there's there's things that are that are that are stacked up on the other side of the door. That once you clear the door from the door jam and you can stick a crowbar in that space and pry it open, right now we are trying to create that crack. And then if we create that crack next year, we hopefully can stick the crowbar in and do it. Now, maybe not, but that they, we are making incremental progress and it will become exponential progress if we can capitalize it two years in a row. Somebody said a similar thing about Josh Allen in the national media a while ago. I don't remember who it was, but they said... That Josh Allen can spend three quarters bashing his head against a brick wall, and eventually the bricks will start to give. And I thought that was just an interesting testament, the fact that he'll just keep slamming away, and if he does it long enough, he's not going to break, the wall's going to break. And I was like, yes, there's, that is excellent. There's just enough wisdom in that that I know it wasn't Booger McFarland. <laughs> just, just, just enough wisdom that I know it wasn't Booger McFarland. So... TJ Yeldon is is the other half of the conversation that we just had with Duke Williams. I think it's a little bit simpler um, because I don't think that TJ Yeldon gives you 
something that you don't have otherwise necessarily. He gives you more burst and more high-end athleticism, more a little bit more dynamism from the backfield than Frank Gore. You know, it, he's probably he's not the same back that Singletary is. Nobody was talking about giving him more snaps than Singletary, but they want the one-two to not be Singletary Gore. They want the one-two to be Singletary Yeldon. It's all about. I mean, I think it's all about security. I think the answer to this is very simple. Yes. It's, it's about security. Any play where the intent is to gain the most yards as humanly possible, you're going to run it with Devin Singletary. Any play where the intent is to not fumble it and bleed clock, you're going to give it to Frank Gore. And we, you that's know, a binary. Every play yeah. is either designed to gain as many yards as possible or to kill clock. And in one case, you have Devin Singletary, and in the next case, you have Frank Gore. So which one of those touches would you rather have go to Yeldon? I'd rather have Singletary in the receiving game than Yeldon. I'd rather have Singletary between the tackles than Yeldon. I'd rather have Singletary out wide than Yeldon. I'd rather have Gore in a six-minute, four-minute offense trying to bleed clock than Yeldon, who has had some ball security issues. So, there's there's pretty a, simple. There's a hypothetical, there's a hypothetical offense that we don't run. <laughs> that we don't run. I would be more open to this if we ran. We don't run a pony backfield. We do not run a backfield with two tailbacks. No. We run a tail. We run a backfield with one tailback. We run a backfield with one tailback and a fullback. If we are running a lot of Gore and Singletary on the field at the same time, and they're both going out in patterns, and we're trying to split the defense's attention, and we're trying to position ourselves so that we can take advantage of whichever side an elite defender flows opposite, I you can you could talk me into it might be worth finding a way to get some to get some of those plays with Yeldon on the field because it commands more of the defense and it and it could be more. That is not something that is in our playbook right now. It just is. I mean, it isn't. And it's it's what people wanted with Spiller and Jackson that we never did was the pony backfield. That was what everybody wanted Chan to run. This is a tough game for tough people. He knew something that we didn't about who Spiller was and all of that stuff, and, and that rest is history. So, you know, I... I don't know. We already had the conversation about the screen game, which was funny because the first <laughs> first couple first series with Josh Allen out there, they were like, I made the comment. And I think Dable took mushrooms because he was just like, you know, it'd be great if we just did all the things that we've never done and that we're terrible at in this in this play, which is fine. I mean, maybe you're putting them on tape to try to make Houston game plan for them. Or maybe you were literally like, we actually spent some time on that this week. Let's run it against a live defense. And then you run it. It looks clunky as shit. And you're like. Should have not not probably not going to happen. <laughs> I'm calling you out right now. You, you clearly didn't read my Buffalo Rumblings article. I didn't. See, that's exactly what I talked about in crumbling their cookies this past week. I said put put everything on, on everything tape. on tape, all of it, all the screens that everyone's complained. Put it all on tape right now. So Houston, because the Houston and Kansas City both had advanced scouts at the game yesterday, and so just show them all the stuff, literally all the stuff. As much stuff, stuff you have no intention of ever running ever again. Make up plays, draw them up in the dirt, just then for the Jets game. Just so we can put as much, as many things as possible for them to prepare for. What do you think then of the Jet action? Like that being a significant part of the offense on on Sunday. I don't think that's a surprise. Well, you know, we do it, we do it a lot. 
it's like it, it got it varies game by game. Like every game you see it, but whether or not the ball is ever actually given to McKenzie varies. It's like one week he's going to get six carries and one week he's going to get none. He will do the same number of jet actions every week, but it's either we we either are going to do it or we're not. Period. I think part of that just came from the fact that Isaiah McKenzie was on the field for a lot of snaps. And it was like, it's well, just an opportunity for offense. This is this is what we do. <laughs> yeah, when when McKenzie's on the field, we do this thing. And you know, on Wednesdays, on Tuesdays, we were, we were pink or something like that. What's the, what's the Bean Girls? On Wednesdays, we were pink. On Wednesdays, we were pink. Oh, I forget which one is. Is that what it is? So we, either way, it's a funny scene. <laughs> yeah. So we had a listener question, which was after Gilmore got absolutely whooped by Devontae Parker. Whenever Miami stole the bye, Ryan Fitzpatrick stole the bye from the New England Patriots. Booyah! Which was just one of the most heartwarming things we could ever get. Fitzpatrick. I will never not love you, I know, Ryan just, Fitzpatrick. It's just crazy. Yeah, goodness. I mean, can you, if you're Brian Flores and you're in the midst of a rebuild, how can you not want this guy to just like see you through? No way. Yeah. I mean, I said that when they signed him that if your intent is to tank out the season, he's the wrong guy. And and they're going to get a young quarterback. It may not be Joe Burrow, right? It's not going to be the number one guy because they won too many games. But whoever they get, there is no better mentor. There is no better mentor than Ryan Fitzpatrick. So good, good for them. So one thing we want to talk about is we had a, a listener, Frey J, who asked about whether or not... There is, you know, any any movement of the needle for Defensive Player of the Year with Trey White continuing to play really well. Now, obviously, he didn't play on Sunday, but Stephon Gilmore struggling as of late against John Brown. And then Devontae Parker just, just you know, tearing him up as the, as the Dolphins took the bye from the Patriots. So we're not able to get to every question that we get on Twitter because we, we get a lot of them, but this one actually inspired me to go back and watch Devontae Parker against Stephon Gilmore. First off, before we get into that, I want to go ahead and just share my, my bias here. My vote would go to TJ Watt for Player of the Year. Boo this man! I understand that he's a Pittsburgh Steeler and that probably greatly upsets you. It does. But... A bit. But 14 and a half sacks, eight forced fumbles, two interceptions, passes defense. I mean, he has made more impactful plays than any defensive player in the league this year. One of the things that's difficult with corners is that a lot of their success comes in the plays that weren't made. It's the plays that weren't made by the offense. It's not the plays that were made by the corner. Darrell Rivas was the best corner in the league who very, very rarely, if ever, had significantly high interception count because you just didn't go that direction. And so corners are always going to be harder. And when you have a player like TJ Watt, who is really impacting the game at a high level in pass defense, in coverage, in pass rushing, in forcing turnovers... He would get my vote over Tredavious White and over Stephon Gilmore anyway. But if we're going to Stephon Gilmore, I have noticed a correlation between the times when Stephon Gilmore gets whooped and the times when he's playing off coverage. My inkling here is that Gilmore does better when he's in press and he can 
trail you, and he can get his hands on you at the line of scrimmage, and he can move you into a position that will be beneficial to him as he trails you. But typically, when he plays off and he's forced to kind of turn his hips, John Brown and Devontae Parker a couple different times got in his blind spot and he lost them. That's what happened with John Brown on that play. John Brown got into Stephon Gilmore's blind spot. Much like a car has a blind spot, human beings have them too. And as Stephon Gilmore turns his hips to run, there's a blind spot there. And as that happens, as the cushion gets eaten up, and as he turns to his hips, John Brown makes a move and he's gone. And Stephon Gilmore thinks he's going one way, he's going the other way. And now there's seven yards of separation all of a sudden. Devontae Parker did it to him too. Stephon Gilmore is better in press man. It's one of the reasons why he did so well in Jim Schwartz's system with Ronald Darby on one side and Stephon Gilmore on the other side. And when you have a player who's a good route runner and has enough speed to eat up that cushion in off coverage quickly and get you to turn, Stephon Diggs, I, I think, would do well against Stephon Gilmore. Because he has that kind of route running where he can get off the jam quickly. And then when he gets off the jam quickly, that ruins Stephon Gilmore's ability to be physical and then trail. And then when Stephon Gilmore then accommodates for that by going off coverage, Stephon Diggs can get him in, eat up his backpedal and get him into his hips turning. And then when that happens, he can get in his blind spot and be gone. Is there anybody on the Titans that would have that kind of ability to potentially give... Gilmore fits this weekend? I think A.J. Brown has it. I don't think they're going to give it to him. I don't. I think that with a lot of Ryan Tannehill's success this year, I truly don't think that the Patriots are going to give Tannehill and A.J. Brown free releases. I just don't. A lot of Tannehill's success has come off play action to receivers who are running in the intermediate areas of the field unchallenged. And I really feel like the Patriots' solution to that will be this is a rookie receiver and we're just going to mug him. And so I don't know. I don't think that the Titans can't do it. I don't think that we will see it. I think that a lot of the problem that you have with a really good corner like that, even if you identify a weakness, is you can't make him go to off coverage. There's nothing you can do as an offense to dictate to him he has to play in off coverage. Some of that is simply defensive game planning Unless you're so good off the release that you burn him so many times off of the release that he doesn't have a choice. He has to back off. And there are so few route runners in the NFL. Devontae Adams for the Packers, Packers. right? He's a guy who can do that. But there are so few route runners who can get off of that press on the outside consistently well enough to force you into off coverage. Yeah. So the other big thing that, you know, is not something we were asked about, but that came out of this game is the injury bug, you know, hit the bills a little bit. Now, Ty and Secchi's kind of a push because I was actually very surprised that he was active and that he was ready to go. I thought they would just give him another week of a useless game, but they thought it was actually going to be more valuable for him to knock off some rust rather than get more rest. Okay, so be it. That's fine. 
well, now he's hurt again, and I would be quite shocked if he was gonna if he was gonna be back now for the wild card game. That there was a part of me that didn't think he was gonna be ready for the wild card game, anyways. So, kind of, kind of a you know, not necessarily like things moved the needle very much there. Now Cody Ford got something, a pinch or something in the shoulder. It sounded like, hopefully not severe. As of the time of the recording, uh, we haven't heard from McDermott, right? No, we haven't heard from McDermott as the time of we're recording this on Monday afternoon. But all indications are Cody Ford will be fine. Levi Wallace is the injury that's the, to that, note. That's the that's the significant one. And you know, if you if you really want to try to force this to be a, a glass half full, I made the comment to you and Greg. I I I'm glad that we in a game that didn't mean anything, but that was still the the opponent was had something to play for and was you know putting their best out there. That Taron Johnson got forced into outside coverage because the reps give him the reps. You yeah, know, the reps, I mean? reps matter. Reps, those reps matter for sure. That especially whenever it's a guy who who does that job but doesn't do that job in that place in that way. So Levi Wallace goes down, and whether or not you like Kevin Johnson or Levi Wallace more, I, I'm a guy who I think you know I've kind of shown my cards that I I like the top-end athleticism of Kevin Johnson more than what Levi Wallace gives us. Now, he's obviously played well enough to still be on the field and all that. But you've got Levi Wallace, who goes down a little bit dinged up. you got Cody Ford, who who takes you know a bit of a bit of a shot and goes down. you got Taron Johnson, who did get nicked up. And, you know, not for nothing, Taron Johnson used to be the guy who had the injury bug all year. Last year, Taron Johnson, as a rookie, was prone for shoulder injuries. He, he was nagging that shoulder every year. And you and I came into this year going, Taron Johnson, you know, flying in there like Bob Sanders, he's going to bang up that shoulder quite a bit. And he, to his credit, has been reasonably healthy this year. Right. So now all of a sudden our corner depth is is very, very tested. You've got Trey White, perfectly healthy. You've got Kevin Johnson, perfectly healthy. Okay. You've got Taron Johnson, maybe a little bit bumped and bruised. And then you've got Levi Wallace, total question mark. And then you've got Saran Neal, who played quite nicely, I thought, yeah. against Robbie Anderson in, in a cross. There was a particular play that, that, that made me you know like what Saran did. And I think Saran's a good tackler anyways. I think he's been a, a guy who's been biding his time and doing what needs to do, making the transition from safety to corner. I, I like what he brings. And he's going to see some time, especially if Levi's hurt. We have Isaiah McKenzie, too. So there's McKenzie Island. Zero targets from McKenzie Island. That's right. Three reps, zero targets. Yeah. that's One, uh, of, my, one of my followers pointed out that now there's two corners who haven't allowed a touchdown. It's Tredavious White <laughs> and Isaiah McKenzie. That's great. Isaiah McKenzie just j- jumped Stephon Gilmore as far as the cornerback rankings. Yeah. I'd be very interested to see how Pro Football Focus graded Isaiah McKenzie on the snaps. Yeah. So we don't know anything about Levi, but that, you know, he didn't put weight on it. Short week because we're playing on Saturday, not Sunday. It, Unlikely. It, it just doesn't look great. So we're looking at Kevin Johnson and Trey White on the outside. Kevin Johnson going against his former team, mm-hmm. which is of interest, and probably going to have another safety active. Is there any chance that Jaquan Johnson is going to be active in, in this stead with our defensive back being a little bit trimmed? I can absolutely see that. Okay. I can see him and Dean Marlowe. Well, we're, we typically run with four safeties, right? So we typically run with Hyde, Poyer, 
Coleman and, and Marlowe. Having Dean Marlowe playing slot corner and moving Saran Neal to the outside for the snaps that previously would have gone to Levi Wallace, not unreasonable. Yeah. So, we, I mean, if we get to that point, that's obviously not the way you draw it up, but... Well, every, <laughs> Dean Marlowe. He almost single, had a pick six. It would have been so good for the brand. Every, for the brand, man. Every single time Dean Marlowe was in the screen, I would turn to Nick and go, you know, Dean Marlowe was right there. Boy, Dean Marlowe was right there. <laughs> yes. So, uh, we, you know, Spiro Didis really did us a solid by putting that on tape. For the brand, man. For the we brand. have been on the Dean Marlowe train since yeah. he's training not, camp. He's not on-demand Dean anymore, though. He's no. he's on the team. He's on the team, yeah. Dean, on instead the te- of on-demand Dean. Yeah, that's right. So, okay. Let's go ahead and, and before we go to our next topic, I do want to take a moment and shout out one of our original NNN OGs, uh, Dusty Bottoms. Dusty is a member of Bill's Mafia. He lives over in Colorado, I believe, and he is a middle school football coach. He has been coaching middle school football for, I believe, about 10 years, and he has started doing some what he calls coaches whiteboards before each Bills game. He takes a concept uh, either offense or defense about what the other team is going to be doing or maybe what he thinks the Bills ought to do in this game against this opponent. And he breaks it down on the whiteboard and basically kind of shows you maybe a little bit about language, a little bit about uh, motion and what, what teams are doing. But in general, because he's been coaching youth football, what Dusty, I think, is really good at is he's good at taking you from 1 to 1B uh, as far as knowledge about something related to you know football X's and O's. So it's certainly not perfect, and, and he's not attempting to be perfect or, or comprehensive, but it's to move the needle a little bit and give you some kind of exposure into what we're going to be seeing. So head over to Twitter and keep an eye out on Wednesday. I believe he is going to drop his coach's whiteboard thread. And again, that's Dusty Bottoms. It is at Dusty Practor. D-U-S-T-Y-P-R-A-C-T-O-R is the handle. And uh, give Dusty a little a little check out there. We'll do a quick teaser um, about the Houston game. We're going to do a, a comprehensive primer, but we've got about eight minutes before the next break or so. Okay, so I have a, I have a dumb question. J.J. Watt's coming back. This is a big storyline. J.J. Watt is also a defensive end who plays in a 3-4, right? That's, that's what he became famous in. Yeah, he, he became famous as a 5-tech in Romeo Crennel's 3-4 defense. That's where he became, he rose to notoriety. Okay, so first of all, to give us a quick breakdown. What is the responsibility of a 5-tech? Because we, we became familiar with a 1-tech and a 3-tech this offseason. If you didn't already, because we had to talk about Ed Oliver being such a highly thought of prospect or Quinn and Williams, how they were going to be doing different things than Starla Tulele. You know, we we brought up to speed a little bit on that. Five tech is not something that we talk about very much in the Buffalo defense. And I, I would be interested, you know, at this point in his career, maybe it's very different from earlier in his career. What is it about J.J. Watt that makes him so dangerous what is he what is makes him so good at football with what he is tasked with doing jj watts injuries have significantly sapped his ability to do the things that made him special early in his career but jj watt has unbelievably long arms (laughs) gigantic just unbelievably long arms just a big human and uses them really well 
and has really good explosive first step and is strong as an ox. So think of someone like Aaron Donald, right? Now give Aaron Donald long arms, okay? And make him not quite as explosive, but make him stronger. That's what J.J. Watt was. I mean, obviously, that's incredibly, I mean, that's an unbelievably boiled down boiled down and rudimentary, but I'm trying to help people. But he's, he's strong, he's long, and he uses them both. Yes. Okay. That's so, way better than, than, than what I said. Well, okay, that's fine. That's why, we, that's why we're a team. So what is the responsibility of a five-tech Obviously depends on the defense. It's Wait, a, and it's not a defensive tackle. It's not a five-tech defensive end. They are listed as defensive ends. Okay. okay? But That's, they are not edge rushers. Okay. So your defensive ends in a 3-4, you have one defensive tackle and two defensive ends in a 3-4. You have a nose tackle, right? And you have what we call a zero-tech, right? A nose tackle. He's head up over the nose. And then you have five techs. And those five techniques in the vast majority of defensive 3-4 systems are responsible for two gaps. They're responsible for a gap to their left and are responsible for the gap to their right. Wade Phillips is an exception to this rule. Wade Phillips traditionally runs a one-gapping 3-4. It's a really unique system that Wade has kept with him his entire career, and I don't know of anyone off the top of my head who duplicates exactly what Wade does. But that's not what J.J. Watt does. That is not what J.J. Watt has historically done. So, so, real quick, I mean, what I think is surprising hearing you say this is that J.J. Watt was known for getting a lot of sacks. The fact that he was able to do it from a five-tech is what makes him so special. It was a very similar to Bruce Smith. Bruce Smith, in my opinion, is the greatest pass rusher of all time. Okay, I mean, I, I, I will listen to your Deacon Jones arguments. I will listen to your Reggie White arguments. But one of the things I believe makes Bruce Smith... Deacon the, Jones with the head with slap. With the head slap, right? This, man, back when football was way more violent <laughs> than were, it is like, now. Wrapping your hands in tinfoil and smacking <laughs> each other with it. But Bruce Smith did all his damage... From a position where it's more difficult to get sacks. Yeah, like what would J.J. Watt have been if he was in a 4-3? He, he probably would have been a 3-tech. Oh, was, really? He would have been in the middle. Yeah, he was fast enough to play on the outside, right? He's fast enough to play in a 4-3. I think you could have done it. Um, there were some questions coming out about J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt was not a top-five pick. There, there was questions about him being a kind of a tweener coming out. I remember from scouting him. I mean, that was the Marcel Darius year. Marcel Darius and Nick Fairley were the big discussion. Darius or Fairley? And then I really liked Cameron Jordan. He was my favorite, right? And then the Saints got him, and he ended up being a, a monster in uh, all sorts of systems that they've run down there in New Orleans because he's just a special player coming on a Cal. But J.J. Watt is a special player. I am not overly worried about J.J. Watt in this game. I mean, he's already he he's older now. Now, pass rushers can be successful late into their career, but he's not exclusively a pass rush responsible end. He's had so many injuries that are fairly notable that, I mean, every year and a half or so, he suffers a pretty significant injury. You know, he broke a leg in 17 and in 19 he tore a pec. I mean, tearing a pectoral muscle for a defensive lineman who is going to have his hands for uh, essentially an interior defensive lineman, because that's basically what 3-4 defensive ends. Now, obviously, you know, we're talking about original era J.J. Watt. But for defensive linemen who come out and pop you, right, and rely on their strength and their leverage to hold that gap and keep 
their head on a swivel and have that bench-pressing offensive lineman, essentially. Tearing a pec is a big deal. And his first game back from tearing a pectoral muscle, is it possible he could be a huge game wrecker? Sure, it's possible. He's an elite player. That sounds pretty unlikely. But I'm not super worried about it. I'm much more worried about Whitney Merciless coming off the other side. So are they still running a 3-4? It's still Romeo Crennel, and it's still essentially a 3-4 defense. Now, obviously, the NFL has evolved quite a bit, and Romeo has as well since J.J. Dar- Watt. Since Marcel Darius was drafted? Yeah, since Marcel <laughs> Darius was drafted, right. But it's still a 3-4. It's still Romeo Crennel, and J.J. Watt's responsibilities are still going to be very similar. Okay. All it's right. not exactly the same defense that it was back then. We were, I mean, obviously, you and I were talking about how he rose to prominence, right? And that may not be exactly the same things he would do when he came back this week, but it's still essentially this similar. Okay. All right. Well, let's take our last break. We'll come back and we will go through the Texans from A to Z or X, since they don't have a Z in their name. A to X. Or there's an S at the end. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumble, a postseason Buffalo Rumbling playoff caliber podcast. Ooh, playoff I- caliber, championship caliber, perhaps? We'll see. I am one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And I'm Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. All right. So the Texans. Okay. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to start and you're going to fill in all the gaps with all the details. We're going to Houston. I, we're traveling, which means that we're probably going to have, you know, one and a half less day of preparation than the Texans will because we are going to be able to do something maybe maybe um, Friday morning and then we're going to fly and Saturday you know is game day the Texans will have probably a whole Friday to utilize however they would want because there's no travel for them bit of a bummer that's what happens whenever you're not the home team and, and you don't get the seed the Texans have a high power offense or the ability to be a high power offense Deshaun Watson very highly thought of passes for a lot of yards was really really thought of as just an incredibly dynamic player last year this season it seems like the opinion on him is he come back to earth a little bit DeAndre Hopkins is the better of the Clemson receivers over Sammy Watkins, which is a fact that nobody thought was going to be the case. I don't think. I don't remember anybody thinking that was going to be the case. I'll spike the ball on this one for a second. DeAndre Hopkins was my favorite receiver in that class. I desperately wanted us to take him, and he wasn't there at 41, and we took Robert Woods instead. Uh, This was a year before Watkins came out. Yes. Yeah. This was when we picked E.J. Manuel. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. So DeAndre Hopkins is a is a you know he's kind of to me, he's almost like everything that people say OBJ is. DeAndre Hopkins actually is. Everything that people say Odell Beckham Jr. is and how athletic and crazy catches and all of that, DeAndre Hopkins just actually is all of those things. Plus really dangerous after the catch too. So that is their you know, offense. I, I don't know much about their tight end position, their running back position. I Duke Johnson, former Cleveland Brown, was traded there at the very beginning of this and season. And then promptly not used for a third-round pick. Yeah, so... I, in lieu of Carlos Hyde, who, ironically enough, has played fairly well this year. Okay, so Carlos Hyde, which is a guy who 
lacks a little bit in the past game, I think. Yeah. A little, and lacks a little bit of uh, dynamism with his with his athletic ability. Kind of a, you know, it's for some reason Carlos Hyde sort of reminds me of like a Eddie George a little bit. I mean, both from Ohio State, and just kind of steady grind doesn't avoid contact but doesn't run away from you either so you know take that for what it's worth and their offensive line is better 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 they traded for laramie tunsil this year from the from the dolphins right they picked up kenny stills in the deal as well and and failing to address the offensive line was part of what got brian gain fired yeah you and i talked about the mock draft episode of the nick and nolan show and we said you know, if the Texans don't draft uh, a tackle who's ready to go, and going to protect Deshaun they're, Watson, they're they're going to burn the place down in Houston. And then they drafted a bunch of project offensive linemen, and they got he got canned. So then they promptly went out. Bill O'Brien said, "Well, I don't want anybody taking this GM job. I'm just going to trade away all the assets. That way, you can't have any." And he went away and traded away all the assets for Laramie Tunsil. Okay, so. Let's stay on the Texans' offense. Does Bill O'Brien call the plays? They have an offensive coordinator, Tim Kelly, but Bill O'Brien calls the offensive plays. What In that situation, what is the offensive coordinator doing? Are they helping put together the game plan? Yes, he's helping the scheme. Okay, all right. It's the same thing that the offense coordinator, Arch Gailey, did. Well, it's kind of like what Doug Marone did whenever he was with Sean Payton, which was kind of nothing, because Sean, Sean Payton does it all. Curtis Monkins was the offensive coordinator under, under Chan. Chan, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. What does their offense want to do to their opponents? When Will Fuller isn't on the field, nothing is the answer. So Will Fuller is their number two receiver. Will Fuller is the strangest offensive catalyst I have ever seen. It's like when he's on the field, the Houston Texans have a really good offense, and when he's off the field... They literally don't know what to do with their hands. Felt like I was on a spaceship, and uh, I'm not sure what to do with my hands. I mean, it's just it is the strangest, is the strangest dichotomy. One of the reasons that I think the Bills are going to win on Saturday is because I don't think Will Fuller is going to play. That is a a big deal for me, and if we can stop the run game, then I think I can do it. Now, Bill O'Brien is just creative enough to let Deshaun Watson not be necessarily hampered. But Bill O'Brien's not really doing Deshaun any massive favors. So he got a lot of credit when Deshaun was a rookie for tailoring the play calling to Deshaun's skill sets. Which are what? Deshaun is a a really good intermediate passer. He came out with some questions about his deep ball accuracy quite a bit of questions about his deep ball accuracy. He's a really good intermediate passer who extends plays extremely well and is shockingly patient in the pocket for someone who's such a dynamic athlete. Now, does he use his athleticism as a runner very much, or is he is he actually rather hesitant to do so? He'll do it on important downs to move the sticks, but for a person of his athletic profile... Not as much as you think. Okay. And what's, as far as like pass to run split, does Bill O'Brien want to put the ball in the air? Is that his primary 
preference? Does he want to keep it on the ground? I mean, he's got two running backs. If the top two backs are Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson, that's not really game-breaking running back talent. They're not going to, you know, split split, you know, a gap and run away from everybody 80 or 90 yards. So is he trying to do more maybe dink and dunk stuff with them in the passing game and and grind it out off tackle four or five yards at a time? Or is he trying to get those guys in space and, and move the ball? Based on his talent, I would assume it's one way, not the other. So these are the carry stats for Carlos Hyde so far this year. 10, 20, 10, 12, 21, 26, 12, 19, 19, 9, 16, 10, 14, 26, 17, 4. So there's some, so there's some, there's some load there. There's a little bit of load, 245 carries for a thousand, a little over a thousand yards, four and a half yards a carry roughly, which is perfectly respectable. And that is career high for carries for Carlos Hyde. But it's not a we're going to run the offense through you sort of a vibe. This offense still is running through Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins. But they're trying to find balance. One of the reasons they went out and got Carlos Hyde and they traded for Duke Johnson is because they were trying to find balance in their offense. They wanted to have a respectable ground game. Sure, and you you got to get a, a good, better offensive tackle for that. So they went out and got Laramie Tunsil. They just didn't want this to be... Deshaun Watson carrying the team for the next decade. That's what they didn't want to have happen. And that's respectable, I think. But make no mistake, Deshaun Watson is still the man who makes the engine go. So in the passing game, is this so they're probably going to be without Will Fuller, which means their passing offense is going to go through DeAndre Hopkins, and then what's the rest of their talent? Duke Johnson coming out of the backfield is being used in very similar ways to the way he was used in Cleveland, which is actually disappointing to me. I like Duke Johnson. I think Duke Johnson can be an every-down back. But every single NFL coaching staff he's played for so far, all two of them, seems to disagree with me. And not all two of them, two franchises. He's had more than two coaching staffs. But I don't understand. I like Duke Johnson. I think he can play. They make him a third-down back. They make him a third-down back. And I'm looking at him going like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here. He can play. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Duke Johnson can absolutely play. And it's one of those scenarios where Duke Johnson is a player who I don't think necessitates you getting Carlos Hyde as your bell cow. But I would personally rather see Carlos Hyde 20 times a game than Duke Johnson 20 times a game. That's my particular leaning as it goes there. But it really is a matter of Will Fuller being the 1B to DeAndre Hopkins 1A, and then everybody else. And that's one of the reasons why having Fuller not there drops it off so much is because the drop-off between the two of them and everybody else is fairly significant. Who's going to have to make plays then? So can we take away DeAndre Hopkins? If you put Trey White on DeAndre Hopkins, is he shadowing him all Not game? Not entirely, but I'm I'm very confident with Trey White against DeAndre Hopkins that we can not let him destroy us. Now, Kenny Stills is a good player, okay. and he's the one who's going to have to make up the difference. But Darren Fells is 
Not someone I'm overly concerned about. Who's their tight end? Darren Fells. Oh. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly my I th- point. I thought, he was, I thought he was their third wide receiver. I mean, Kiki Coat. I can't, I can't ever say this guy's name. Kiki QT is his name. And I, I can't say it. It's just, it's not, I, for some reason, it just doesn't roll off my tongue well. Kiki QT. Yeah. He, like, blew up in, like, the middle of, like, last year. And then he got hurt. And then he just hasn't quite been the same ever since. So there's some talent there. But Jordan Akins, nah, I'm, I'm fine. Steven Mitchell Jr., I'm not worried. This is about DeAndre Hopkins and Will Fuller. And if Fuller is out, that allows you, depending on how you feel about DeAndre Hopkins, to either put Trey on him and go, do your job, man, or put Trey on him and bracket him and go, he's gone now. Beat us elsewhere. And, and you've got Kevin Johnson against Kenny Stills, and then just the rest, I mean, like, okay, that's I'm fine with that. We match up perfectly fine, I think, with the Texans offense. And remember, the Texans offense is not markedly different than it was the last time we played them, where our defense played really, really well, and Josh Allen made one re- reasonable throw and then got hurt. Yeah. So if you're, if you're Bill O'Brien, and this is the matchup against, you're going up against... What do you think you're going to try to do? I mean, are, you would anticipate they're going to they're going to try pretty hard to take DeAndre away from you. You may not have Will Fuller. Are you going to try to just put it on the ground and hope that yes. our ground game doesn't show up? If it was me against the Bills, I would I would get into I would get into power formations. I would make sure Darren Fells was on the field as much as possible, and I would smack you in the face with Carlos Hyde. Because one of the things that the Bills don't necessarily do is the Bills don't take a lot of snaps in base defense. The Bills leave nickel on the field a high percentage of the time. If you look at their personnel groupings for the year, the Bills play nickel a lot. And if I can force you into into base... And if you don't go base, I penalize you by punching at you in the face every time and literally jamming Carlos Hyde down your throat for four quarters. I think the Bills can be had there. I'm still not convinced that the run game issues aren't going to creep up at an inopportune time. Yeah. So three yards in a cloud of dust is what we don't want to see. I, I, I would love to see them throw the ball 47 times. I think we, I, I think if they throw the ball that many times... I think we'll beat them. They're leading into our best part of our defense, which is our secondary. That's what Dallas did. Dallas was having very reasonable assists. Now, obviously, Dallas's offensive line is markedly better than the Texans' offensive line. But they were having significant success with Ezekiel Elliott. And they just decided, you know what? It's working so well, we're going to stop doing it. So <laughs> they, if the Texans... Now, the good news is Bill O'Brien is not known as being an exceptional game planner. So there's a possibility he comes in and goes, huh, run the ball against a weaker run defense, or pass it against Tredavious White. Run the ball, run the ball. No, no, that's just what they'll be expecting us to do. Oh, that's just what they'll be expecting us to do. And then come and throw the ball 50 times. I hope he does. If he, if Deshaun Watson dropped back to pass 50 times, I think we win. Okay, so how's their pass blocking? They're, they're improved. Better. It, are, you know, is this a situation where... Our guys getting home. I mean, it's going to be a rather average pass rush day in your in, in your expectation. Deshaun Watson brings a lot of pressure on himself by how long he holds the ball. There is a fairly new 
line of thinking in the football analytics community about pressures actually being much more a function of quarterback play than they are of offensive line play. And I've been kind of looking into it and, and, and doing some doing some research on it. But Deshaun Watson is one of those people. Josh Allen is also one of those people who kind of kind of they do it to themselves. They kind of do it to themselves a lot. You can't say, well, you know, look at him. His pressure rate was all well. Part of that's because he holds the ball forever, and Josh Allen holds the ball forever. So does Deshaun Watson. The difference is Deshaun Watson. It, 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 we got a lot of sacks on him last time, and. I'm not sure if the production's a little bit better. I'm not sure if we do because to get you got to get multiple bodies at Deshaun Watson to get a sack. Yeah. If it's if you one man beats his guy, I don't know if you're necessarily going to get him down. A lot of times, I, it seems to me that these particular kinds of quarterbacks they hold the ball for a long time because they are kind of believe they can get themselves they out of trouble. They know they can get out of it. They yes. think they can get themselves out of trouble, and then sometimes they do, and it's great, and then other times it's horrendous, and they don't. So okay. Let's switch to the defensive side of the ball. What are the Houston Texans good at on defense? What, so th- we know we talked about J.J. Watt already. We talked about the 3-4. It's a different 3-4 than when J.J. Watt became famous, just because the league is different. But what are they What are they good at? Are they, are they, are they good up front? Are they good in the back? They're not good at a lot of things. Uh, it, the Texans defense is not not staggeringly good. I'm not overly worried. I don't think this is going to be one of those scenarios where Josh Allen had three good games against eh, okay defenses, and then he had three bad games against really good defenses. The Texans' defense is not on the level of the defenses like Pittsburgh and Baltimore and New England. So that's the good news. Actually, come think of it, a lot of it's good news. Can you tell why I'm so optimistic about this game? Because everywhere you turn around, there's a there's a good news. There. Good news, everyone. Yeah. Here, I mean, here is the point totals that the Texans have given up this year. 30, 12, 20, 16, 32, 24, 30, 24, 3, Jacksonville, 41, Baltimore. <laughs> Back to by weekend between there, thank God. Whiplash. 17, 22, 38, 21, 20, 35. I mean, not De- great, Bob. Denver, Tennessee, Tampa Bay. Atlanta, 32. I mean... Denver putting up a lot on you? Indianapolis putting up 30. Yeah. I mean, so these are... The the defense can be had. Yeah. Now, they have some... They have two corners on the outside who were first-round picks that were cast-offs from previous teams. They have Bradley Roby. Like Kevin Johnson? Like Kevin Johnson. They have Bradley Roby and they have Garyon Conley. I am very familiar with them because, obviously, uh, their first-round picks coming out, so I knew them from there. But they're also both former Buckeyes. So I know them because, for those of you who do not know, I am an Ohio State alum and a fan. So it's it's just not a very intimidating defense. Now, Whitney Merciless is a concern of mine. What does he do? He's a pass rusher. He's an edge rusher um, coming off the edge, coming out of Illinois. Stand-up outside linebacker? Yeah. And he's good enough to cause problems if they decide to take put him over top of Cody Ford. But... The problem is they just don't have enough horses on the defense. Okay, yeah, we have a concerning player, but we can scheme around that. You know, if you give me a week to plan for Whitney Merciless, I can do that. You know, the problem is when they had Whitney Merciless, J.J. Watt at the peak, and Jadavian Clowney, then it was like, okay, now we have a problem. Now there are issues here. This is what gives me hope, okay? The Chargers put up 20. The Falcons put up 32. 
The Colts put up 30. The Raiders put up 24. The Broncos put up 38. The Titans put up 21. And then the Titans put up 35 in a game that didn't matter. The, the Buccaneers put up 20. Now, you know, some of those offenses are better than others, but none of them, none of those offenses, I would say, are head and shoulders on any given Sunday always better than the Bills offense. I think we could find that kind of success against this team. We could find 24 points against this team without question, in my opinion. We can find that. If we don't, it's a failure of the offense. It's not because, well, you know, they got a really good defense and, you know. They're just, just going to get theirs. You know, they're just going to get theirs. And, you know, this is one of those weeks where you don't have excuses for the offense this week. Okay. So if. You know, you're Brian Dable, and you're trying to put together an offense, understanding this is the defense you're going up against. What are some of the things that we ought to be thinking about to try to take advantage of them and, and put to put enough points on the board so that they can't just Carlos hide down your throat the whole game? You know, because that's one of the things is with guys who are not particularly disciplined, which Bill O'Brien and Jason Garrett and some of these other head coaches that would give you head head scratching decisions. They don't stick with things. As soon as it starts to go one way, they kind of lean into. Freddie Kitchens does this too. They just sort of lean into whatever they are in, whatever is right-handed work for them. And so, if we start putting up points, they're probably going to start passing just in an attempt to keep pace, even if they don't have to. So, if we, if that's what we want to do to put them in a position, which then puts our defense in a position to be particularly successful against their offense. How do we do that, and how do we do it early? I would like to see a lot of zone read on Saturday from the Bills. I would like to see a lot of zone read out of spread formations. I want to see us spread the Texans out, not only so that we can see the different pressures they're bringing, but also to kind of manufacture some space for Devin Singletary on the inside. And I'm completely fine seeing a lot of zone read, and if that means Josh Allen has to pull it and run for eight yards and slide... I'm good with that. With because their defense isn't, uh, you know, um, an entity that that strikes fear in you, where you where you feel like you have to do what we did against Pittsburgh and New England, what we were worried about in Baltimore, right? Which is slow it down, play keep, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I don't think this is the defense that we're worried about necessarily having to do that against. No. So if that's the case, we're probably going to go with what we have been doing for most of the season, which is a lot of hurry up. Yes. And if we're doing a lot of hurry up, then that typically means we are spreading it out. Mm-hmm. We are moving guys around and we are getting answers to the test this in should, Josh's helmet before 15 seconds when Dayball gets got off. This should be the Dallas game plan. I like that. We did that in the state of Texas as well. We did. On nationally televised On game. national television. Okay. Roll out the Dallas play. Also, Romeo Cornell. Table <laughs> <laughs> pulls off the, the the game plan from Dallas. <sighs> blows the dust off the top. Romeo of it. Cornell, I don't think is quite as crafty of a defensive coordinator as the Steelers defense and as the Patriots defense with Belichick and Little Belichick and Gerard Mayo and with Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator for the Ravens. He's not quite as crafty. I don't think it's quite as disguised as you would think i went back and i watched Jameis winston's picks and there was a little bit of a of a show two high safeties but then bring one of those safeties down for like robbing of intermediate routes so we got to look out for stuff like that right but 
it wasn't so shifty where I was like, oh, I see what you did there. Like I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't smirk. Most of it's just because Jameis Winston just chucks and ducks, baby. I mean, just squints and throws. Yeah, and weird. it's one of those things where there, there is a little bit of you know safety, safety shifting and and things like that, but nothing so significant that if Josh has his head up on a swivel and snaps the ball and takes a look to see how those safeties are behaving, then he couldn't figure it out. So you think that the zone read run game is going to be something that we could lean on pretty heavily. I do. In the passing game, is there anything in particular that you think is going to be, um, you know, ripe for the taking, ripe for the picking against the Texans? Bradley Roby likes to likes to jump routes. So I'd double like, move. I would like to see some double moves from John Brown. Plus, John Brown is the best target for Josh Allen's deep balls. Like, statistically, Josh Allen's deep balls do better when they're targeted at John Brown. So I would really love to see some double moves because I think the protection can hold up enough for a double move to hit. Dawson Knox did not play against the Jets, which was a surprise inactive to me. Now, we have a lot of tight end depth. I mean, Tommy Sweeney, Tyler Croft, I mean, it's not like those guys have gotten a ton of run and you needed to save them. Uh, they both, you know, either have been inactive or hurt for a significant part of the season. But, you know, it does speak to, I think, how much the Bills think of Dawson Knox and how important he is to their offensive game plan. Is there, you know, maybe this is a three, four question in general, tight end in, you know, passing, Who's responsible for him? Is it going to be a safety? Is it the outside edge rushing linebacker? Is it one of the middle linebackers? And, and and is there an advantage to be found for how we could use Dawson Knox against this kind of a defense? Dawson Knox is always going to be more important as a blocker at this point in his career than he is as a receiver. And receiving against linebackers who can run. Now, I don't think they're going to have... Whitney Merciless run with Dawson Knox down the field very often. But the safeties for the Texans, right, are not awful, but not good. They're not the worst safeties I've ever had in my entire life. But I'm not, I don't look at them and immediately think, you know what? Dawson Knox. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. And so I'm not saying that he doesn't wouldn't have a place in the game plan. I'm saying it didn't immediately jump off the page to me. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, some of the time, whenever you're playing, okay, I have an NFL-quality tight end, Dawson Knox. You have an NFL-quality safety, fill in the blank. Okay, we're both going to go out there and play our game, and we're going to see who executes. You know, we're going to see who, if, if Dawson Knox puts himself in a position to be found and and when the ball is there, he capitalizes. Or if he puts himself in a position where he's not really that open and Josh puts the ball there because it's kind of where he has to go with it and the safety makes plays. You're, I mean, you're both of these guys or these in, it could be other positions as well, are slot against their, you know, thir- their nickel and whatever else. You're going to have these plays where each guy is going to just go out there. There's no necessarily an advantage. There's not necessarily an advantage. It is a go out there and, and, you know, do your job and be better than them. And they're going to do the exact same thing to you. And you just have to win. That is almost a perfect 
you know, uh, a perfect parallel to what a wild card game is in these situations. You know, it doesn't matter who's better necessarily. It's you're going to go out there, you're going to execute and be given your responsibility. Go out there and on this afternoon, be better than that guy, period. That's it. Do you have any words of wisdom? Do you have anything that uh, is, is bouncing around in your head with this situation? We don't need to win this game for this season to be a success. Winning this game would be great. And I think that reasonable confidence about this organization moving forward is good regardless of whether or not we win this game. But I think reasonable confidence about this game is warranted. In addition, Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. Oh, let's do a build. This is the first pot of 2020. That's right. This drops on uh, Wednesday, which is New Year's, New Year's Day. Day. Yes, that's right. Happy New Year, everyone. Well, let me be the very, very first person on this New Year's before we go into Houston and before we go and I'm calling. I think we win this game. I just think it's a good matchup. I think we're a a better coached team. Me too. I think that we are. I think we're going to take it. So as we head into this weekend and then hopefully next week, we're talking about going to a divisional uh, divisional round against either Kansas City or Baltimore, neither of which I think we could not take. That's exciting. Let me be the very first to wish you a happy new year and also the first to tell you this. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha.